Hey, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. We've got a special podcast today. Landon Donovan has coronavirus questions for my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, a medical analyst for CNN and the co-host of the podcast, Epidemic. A quick reminder, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review, and we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Onward! Hey there, it's Grant Wall with the Planet Football Podcast, and we've got a special podcast today. My wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, is an infectious disease specialist. Uh, she is an analyst for CNN, and she co-hosts the podcast Epidemic. She's going to be answering questions about the coronavirus from Landon Donovan, who needs no introduction. Landon, Celine, thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Dr. Gounder. I appreciate it. Um, I just wanted the opportunity, probably selfishly, just to try to learn more about this whole thing because my thought process has evolved quite a bit over the last few weeks and months. So I'm sick of hearing from people who don't know what they're talking about, and I wanted to hear from someone who knows what they're talking about. So I appreciate it. Um, so I'll dive right in. Um, and these will be all over the place, so my apologies, but I've there are things I haven't really had answered in the public forum or from what I hear on TV or what I read. So just trying to get answers um, for questions people have had. Um, okay. So I'll start with, does a person's level of fitness, health, um, wellness, et cetera, impact their ability to contract this and then also to fight it off or recover? So by being healthier or fitter, does that lower your chances of getting coronavirus? And then does it help you also fight it off faster? Is there any validity to that? So there's sort sort of two pieces to that, Landon. You have the risk of being infected and then the risk of severe disease and death. So in terms of risk of being infected, that's really more a question of are you being exposed to people who have COVID-19 and to what degree are you exposed? So the group that's by far the highest risk for infection is healthcare workers because they're seeing basically all the patients in the hospital have coronavirus now. And not just that, you know, so not only are they being exposed over and over and over again, but the dose with which they're being exposed is much higher. Because if you think about when a healthcare provider cares for a patient, you know, we get really close and the patient, you know, at that point is usually pretty acutely ill. So they might be coughing and sneezing and so on in a way that you're not going to see somebody who's just running in Central Park doing, um, you know, even if they are a carrier of the infection. Um, the second piece is once infected, what is your risk of having severe disease or dying? And that's where your baseline fitness does matter. Um, I don't know that I would say that being an elite athlete protects you that much over somebody who's reasonably healthy, but there's no question that if you have underlying heart or lung disease, in particular those two, um, as well as diabetes and obesity, um, those will those do predispose you to more severe disease and increase your risk of death. Okay, and then you touched on something else. I, so I, I'm confused because is there a certain amount? Um, you said like higher doses. I understand if you're more exposed on a daily basis, like a, a physician or a um, nurse or somebody like that is, that you have a higher likelihood to get it. But 
is there a certain like do you get certain doses of diseases or certain amounts of it like could i get a very very mild strain of it and someone else get a much much more potent strain of it it's not so much the strain it's literally the amount of virus to which you're exposed so if you think about you know you're exposed to one or two particles of virus versus you know a whole load of it um that actually does make a difference because if it's a tiny amount your immune system has some time to recognize it, respond to it, mount a response before the virus has had too much time to replicate. Whereas if you get a big dose, your immune system doesn't get that kind of head start. And again, this is why even young healthy healthcare workers have had severe disease because they're basically getting a big dose all up front. So they don't have sort of that that time uh, for their immune systems to to react the way that the average person may have that chance. Okay. All right. I told you I'm going to jump around and I'm literally just jumping around this page of pa- the sheet of paper. Um, I think the biggest, well, not the biggest, there's a ton of big questions, but why were we not prepared for this? And why, I mean, I'm not an expert. So in the beginning I was saying things like, well, it's, you know, it's in China and so was SARS and so was, you know, so were other things, but it never made it way, its way here. It wasn't that big of a deal. But aren't we supposed to be, aren't, aren't there people paid? Um, and isn't this why we pay so many taxes, especially in California, New York, so that we're prepared for things like this? Yeah, that's a huge question. Um, and there's d- different ways to answer it. So first of all, for those of us who work in this space, we have been saying literally for decades that this was something that we needed to worry about. We were more worried about a pandemic influenza that was going to behave in in exactly this way than specifically a coronavirus. But really, you know, the premise is is essentially the same in terms of what you need to be preparing for, um, you know, in terms of things like the national stockpile, in terms of uh, drug and vaccine development and and those kinds of those kinds of issues. Um, I don't really understand why it is people feel the need to prepare against human threats as opposed to viral or other biological threats. Um, That's one I don't understand because, frankly, it really should be part of our national security uh, agenda and priorities to be preparing for both. I mean, it would be like saying we don't need a military until the next attack. Um, you know, obviously, it doesn't make any sense at all. And and frankly, you know, this was under certain administrations recognized to be a national security concern. After Ebola, there was a position on the National Security Council focused on pandemic preparedness. And um, John Bolton um, and this current administration dissolved that, um, which you know, I, I don't know that that would have solved everything, but it certainly would have put us in a, in a slightly better position to prepare for the current situation. Okay. And, and why didn't Ebola, and these are, I apologize if these are really dumb questions, but why didn't Ebola or MERS or SARS or H1N1, like, why didn't they take off the way this has? Well, some of this is a reflection of how infectious it is, how it's transmitted, and then how deadly. So, Ebola um, is not infectious, doesn't spread as as easily as coronavirus. So Ebola is really something that's spread um, by contact with infected fluids, but it's not spread through the air. Uh, whereas coronavirus, you know, if you're coughing or sneezing in somebody's vicinity, it's it's going to be transmitted to somebody. That's why you know the six feet rule comes in. Um, 
Now, MERS and SARS are, tr- are also coronaviruses like COVID-19. They are transmitted similarly. They seem to be relatively less transmissible as compared to COVID-19. Um, so while the route of transmission is essentially the same, the degree, the probability of transmission is, is lower with SARS and MERS. And then, and then the other piece of it is how likely is it to kill you? So if something is extremely fatal like Ebola, um, it's actually much harder for it to spread through the population because people die from it pretty quickly and, and they're not able to spread it. Um, you know, whereas with coronavirus, we're actually realizing probably about a quarter of people who get it don't have any symptoms at all. And then another big chunk have very mild symptoms. Um, and those people can be spreading this um, and they themselves really don't suffer major consequences, but other people to whom they spread it to may and, and so that's you know that's also a big difference here so it leads to the question shouldn't we and maybe this is something you shout from the rooftops all the time but shouldn't we kind of be social distancing like forever anyway i mean do we really want to be exposing ourselves to any of this stuff all the time well i mean i think social distancing forever um is pretty radical i think we do need for the foreseeable future to be very focused on very strict social distancing we're looking at probably a couple months here of that um and and it's also going to be sort of in waves where essentially what's happened is new york city being the biggest densest city in the country and then some of the west coast cities like seattle san francisco and la are sort of at the front end of this curve where you know, those West Coast cities um, also have tighter relationships with China and other Asian countries, both in terms of business and travel. So, of course, those are the places that are going to be hit first. And then now we're seeing sort of a second wave with Midwestern and Southern cities like Detroit, Chicago, Atlanta, New Orleans. And then it will go from there to other such cities in the heartland, as well as suburban areas and, and then rural areas. And so suburban areas we're already seeing here outside New York City, places like Bergen County, Westchester County, and even um, places as remote as the Navajo Nation is seeing cases now. So it's kind of trickling from the biggest, most populous, highest risk places into the rest of the country. Um, and so there are certain regions that may go through the social distancing phase, you know, the very um, tight lockdown first, and then be able to move into the next phase of containment, which I can describe in a moment um, later um, or after that, while other parts of the country may still need to be under lockdown. Now, what does life after lockdown look like? Um, you know, what you really want to do is get to the point where there's not so many cases in the community um, that you, when you have many fewer cases, you're actually able to do contact tracing, which is where, you know, if you take person A who has a disease, can you tra- trace, you know, um, the person B and C that they have infected and then be able to say, okay, person C has infected person D and E. Right now we can't do that because there's just so much transmission that those chains are completely blurred. But once you get it suppressed enough that you can start to do that and complement that with testing, it becomes a very different thing to control. So that would be sort of the next phase in all of this. So I think once we get to that point, we won't need to do social distancing the way we are now. Okay, so to that end, um, is so it look it seemed like, and I don't know if this was planned or if it seemed like it was more reactionary um, from our government and even our like even our local governments 
we went through a, okay, no, no mass gatherings of a thousand plus, no mass gatherings of 250, no mass gatherings of 10. And then it was basically self-isolation. So when you come out of this, is there a similar sort of easing back in? And it leads to my bigger question is, like, when will we be able to have sporting events again in front of fans? And I know you don't have a definitive answer, but is there a, you know, is there a process that we go through to get back to normal life? Or is it just one day we say, okay, we feel good about it. Everyone can get back together now. Yeah, I mean, I think those initial cutoffs were very um, arbitrary, frankly. They were not science-driven. A lot of that was more sort of like, well, we know we need to do something, and this is what we think is politically or socially palatable. Um, you know, I think it's really much more what I was describing earlier to, to get transmission suppressed to the point where we can trace chains of transmission, where we have enough testing available, um, and then we can just, you know, really lift the social distancing measures. Um, the other piece of that is there are antibody tests that are being developed, which is different from the tests available right now. So the tests we have right now uh, really detect the genetic material of the virus. So it tells you, is the virus, at least the genetic material in the person's body right now? So we use that more to figure out, okay, you have you have a cough, you have shortness of breath. Is that because you have coronavirus? Is that from another pneumonia? Is that maybe from emphysema or heart failure? So that's how we're using the test right now. It doesn't tell us anything about, did you have it a month ago or two months ago? It doesn't tell us if you're immune. And so the tests, the antibody tests that are um, in development right now that hopefully we'll have available soon will tell us, did you have it a month or two ago and are you immune now? And so that's really important for this second phase because that's when you can also be more targeted in terms of who do you sort of shield from exposure and who can you say can go back to work. Um, so if you're antibody positive, you should be able to go back to work. Um, you're not going to get infected and have severe disease. And also very importantly, you're not going to help transmit the disease in the community. Right. So we could literally say like it, here at SD Loyal with the front office staff or with our players, everybody takes a test and those who are have the antibodies or are immune to it already mm -hmm. can go back to work but then what happens for people who are not who have not had it are not immune to it therefore i mean you don't want them going back out in the world right and so those are the people that may need to continue doing um isolation you know the social distancing thing and i think you know there's been discussion well what about just letting young healthy people go back to work the problem with that there's two problems one some of them will get very sick some of them will end up on ventilators and some of them will die so that's a very crude way of deciding what's your risk the other problem with that is that they can contribute to ongoing transmission in the community. So really having an antibody test to make that differentiation, you know, who needs to continue isolation, who doesn't, that is a far more useful and safe way of doing that. Okay, but uh, that's confusing to me because let's say I am, let's say everybody on my team is, has been exposed to it, is now immune to it, but I am not. Mm-hmm. Isn't the point then to become immune to it? Because I can't self-isolate forever because right. it's when I need to be exposed to it so that I can become immune to it. So I have to wait till there's a vaccine in a year before I can leave my self-isolation? I mean, potentially, yeah, that's what we're looking at. Um, Don't tell me that. <laughs> 
Well, or, you know, and, and, and there, then there's also going to be a discussion. Like if you were saying, well, my entire team except for me is immune, um, that basically means you have the herd immunity of the team that's protecting you. So, you know, I think these are going to be more nuanced discussions of, well, if it, everybody on the team except Landon is immune and we can assure that Landon is not exposed to anybody outside the team, you know, is there a way to make it safe for Landon to go back to playing? Um, so, you know, I, I think there's going to be sort of a balancing act to be done. Um, but I think especially people who are not immune um, and who fall into very high risk groups and who are in places where there is known transmission, there's ongoing transmission, those people absolutely are going to have to keep self-isolating until there's a vaccine. Okay, I want to get back to something you said earlier then, because if the, and this is where my thinking has evolved, if we can save one life, it's worth it, right? And, and in the beginning, it was kind of like, well, it's just like the flu, and a lot of people die of the flu. So that's like a crude way to say it, but it's the reality. But I, I just, you know, as a human being, if you can save one life, it's worth it. But back to the social distancing thing, if this is the case always, and when this goes away or when, when it, there's flu season, shouldn't we not be trying to spread anything to anybody? I mean, isn't that the goal to save at least one life? So why wouldn't we just do it all the time? Well, this is where, so the CDC has been contemplating whether to recommend that everyone wear some sort of face covering. Um, and, you know, there are Asian countries in which people do that. And they also do that in part because of pollution. But um, there's more of a culture of in the winter, you do cover your nose and mouth, especially if you are sick. And so I think that may, in fact, potentially be a lasting impact of this on our social norms, where during cough and cold season, um, we do wear some sort of face covering. And it doesn't need to be for that purpose when you're just trying to tra prevent transmission from yourself to others. That doesn't need to be a medical grade mask. That could just be a scarf or a bandana or, you know, whatever it is, um, as long as it's covering the nose and mouth. And so that I think would be a very actually, you know, positive development because it would help prevent not just transmission of coronavi coronavirus, but also influenza and other cough and cold viruses. Okay. One question that is uh, very pertinent to us and what we're doing. Would you, in your professional opinion, assuming let's, let's use a scenario where everybody on both teams, a team we're on and a team we're playing against, um, had developed immunity or was had developed the herd immunity or was you know let's just say safe right at this point would you um in your professional opinion recommend and say that it's okay for us to be playing games in front of empty stadiums uh, at some point whenever let's say that's two weeks four weeks six weeks eight weeks whatever would you say that that is a safe thing to do well a couple things um one, you know, how do you function as a team? Um, are you a bubble of your own? Um, probably not, because I assume people have significant others and children and so on. Um, and that, that's where it becomes very difficult to control the risk within a team. If you could guarantee that everybody on the team was not having contact with anyone else from the outside world during some set period of time um, so that you can prevent... Um, you know, any infection from penetrating sort of that team um, group, that would be a way of, of, you know, restarting play sooner.
Okay, so I can speak for every parent in America. We would happily be isolated from our children right now and not <laughs> for a while. So I think we can get that done. <laughs> Probably our significant others too. <laughs> no. Okay. All right. A couple more questions, and I appreciate you taking the time. Um, uh, did a, there are two big ones. One is actually I won't even get into that. I was going to ask you about anti-vaxxers, but that's like. I don't know how that plays into this really. Um, so I have heard really, really smart people and I have really smart, some very smart friends who see both sides of this coin. And I want to be careful about how I word it, but it is, I think there is a reality to it. So I think you're aware that when the economy hits a certain point um, negatively, people actually die, right? I mean, it is mm-hmm. linked to people dying. So how do we as a society balance people dying from COVID-19 and what that looks like versus how we are impacting our economy long-term that will lead to suicide, people dying um, literally of starvation, getting kicked out of their homes, being kicked onto the street, homeless, et cetera. How do we, because... You know, I hear people say, I hear Governor Cuomo say, I've heard, uh, I think I've heard you say it, I've heard others say, the only way to get the economy back is to get everybody healthy, which I understand and can appreciate. But there are people who, when I go to the grocery store, I know there are people who have to work or else they will not survive. So how do we balance that? Well, and I think to your point that this idea that there are people who have to work because otherwise they won't survive, you're exactly right. And that's part of the problem we're seeing right now. Um, you know, why was Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, the hospital hit hardest by all of this in New York City? It's because it serves a community where it's people who work in service jobs. So these are the people who drive cars, you know, who are our drivers, our nannies, our housekeepers, our food delivery people, our food preparation folks, you know, restaurant workers and so on, and they don't have a choice. And I think this is where if we want to also blunt some of the um, economic impacts, um, you know, in order to really achieve the necessary social distancing as soon as possible, we're going to need to help people at that end of the socioeconomic spectrum so that they can adhere to social distancing, the longer social distancing needs to be implemented, the greater the damage to the economy. Um, And then on top of that, um, you know, the long term effects that you're talking about in terms of what's the impact of the economy on people's health. It's also at that end of the socioeconomic spectrum that people are going to suffer the most. And we've already seen this um, in terms of who, you know, in terms of increasing um, rates of suicide, you know, who who's most affected by that in the US. That's essentially poorer Americans. And so, you know, that's who this is going to affect. So if, if we're concerned about that, that is where we're going to have to do some sort of redistribution of resources to address that and to support people through what is going to be probably a very difficult couple years after this. Okay. Um, last question. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Um, if you, like, what, in your opinion, is the most urgent, important thing for us to know or do or help with right now. A lot of people feel helpless. 
Mm-hmm. And so if, you, you know, like if it's absolutely social distancing is the number one or staying isolated or um, safe in place, uh, or if it's sending whatever masks to hospital workers who need them or PPE to people who need, like what is the one thing that is most grave that people can help with or do to help? Well, I think it's exactly those two things that you just, uh, you know, cited Landon. I think, um, one, really taking social distancing seriously, really committing to it, um, trying to put pressure on family and friends to also do it. This is a real problem. This is not a hoax. Um, and and so I think that's number one. Number two, if you have, I wouldn't say go out, you know, don't log on Amazon and try to buy up PPE. You're just going to drive up prices even beyond what they are now. But if you have some in your home, if you know friends or family who have it, have them donate that to the hospital because it really is a very um, dire situation that we're dealing with right now. We are seeing doctors and nurses getting sick from this, um, which is a real problem because if they get sick, that means you have that many more people having to call out from work, that many fewer people available to take care of patients. Um, So I think those are really crucial. And then finally, you know, give to their social service programs that are really trying to help the most vulnerable. So some of the people we were just talking about, you know, people for whom, you know, just getting a meal uh, might be a challenge now. And there are a number of organizations, depending on where you live, that really are trying to do that. So I would say, you know, if you can write a check um, to help one of those local organizations, that would really have an impact as well. Okay. Thank you very much. I know you're really busy and I really appreciate it. It's really helpful. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I wanted to thank both of you for taking the time to do this, Landon, for being interested and wanting to, and Celine for taking this much time to answer. Her name's Dr. Gounder. (laughs) Yes, don't forget it. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Bye. Be well. Bye. Thank you, you too. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Celine Gounder and Landon Donovan, as well as producer Harry Swartout and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, it would really help us out if you go to Apple Podcasts and provide a rating and a review, and we'd appreciate you recommending the podcast to someone you know. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.